Hello and welcome to uh, Tuesday. Uh, we have Stephen Gill uh, calling in from the UK. G'day, Stephen. How are you? Not too bad, Wardy. Yourself? Yeah, good. Um, so, Stephen, we're going to just go through a bit of your uh, story. If you could, for um, you know, the abbreviated version, because we will get into the story in some depth, but who you are for people who might not have met you before. Okay, so uh, do you have four hours or how long? <laughs> I'll try and condense it into three hours, 50 minutes. <laughs> so long story, I think my journey first started in the cooperative world in the uh, uh, mid nineties, uh, working for a, a Scottish consumer co-op, uh, a food co-op and uh, working in IT and, and really enjoyed it. But I didn't really understand cooperation. You became a member because that was the thing that you did, but I didn't really understand um, co-ops. What I did understand though, is that it was my tribe. It was my team and I was very proud of the team and I was very protective of the team. And when that tribe was attacked by others from outside, for example, suppliers that were taking advantage of us, um, that really frustrated me and, and so, you know, got me angry thinking, you know, I, I want to protect the tribe and, and what can I do? Um, and that led me on a journey to kind of jump sideways to what is now BME, um, who became the, the supplier to this co-op. And uh, the one thing I liked about BME is that it was an ethical business. It wasn't a co-op. I didn't even know things other than food co-ops existed, but it was a, an ethical business. And it, it did business what I would describe as the right way. Um, so I jumped sideways onto that and ended up leading a, an MBO of that company uh, in 2004. Now, I should mention it's a software company um, providing retail technology solutions, basically. Um, so we were running that in an ethical manner uh, with a lot of co-ops as customers, and that was all, all fine. Um, and it was a chance meeting in 2017 in Malta at Co-ops Europe conference with a, a chap that some may be maybe heard of called Ed Mayo, who was presenting uh, about the collaborative economy. Um, and it was like a light bulb moment for me. I thought, hang on, <laughs> there's more than one type of co-op. What's that all about? I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. And, and mine was blown and it just opened a whole new chapter um, for me. So as I said, I'm going to condense this story. So I'm not give you the, the full uh, version, but it took us four attempts and finally, two months ago, we managed to convert uh, VME to a, a worker co-op using something called an employee ownership trust model in, in the UK um, with a branch in Malta. But just before I finish on that, on that journey, that three-year journey, um, I realized what I'm sure you've known for some time is that um, there is a capital conundrum. <laughs> um, cooperatives and capital is difficult and withdrawable share capital, um, I must be honest, I'm not the biggest fan. It has its place. Um, I think for the scale that the co-ops, uh, the cooperative movement needs to get to, it's, it's not the right answer. Um, so it's a dilemma and I studied it and, and explored it and, and working in conjunction with fair shares, um, I learned about something called investor shares that would be non-voting. So you could invest into cooperatives, but you wouldn't have control. And this to me just seemed like an answer. So. That's how Co-op Exchange started, and we'll talk about that later on, no doubt, but uh, it started with the idea of building a platform that you could bring people that wanted to invest in cooperatives without having a say, 
just to provide their capital to help that club to deliver its purpose um, and get something in return. Um, it may succeed, it may not, but um, it's to really to try and open up that model to uh, perhaps people outside of um, the movement that might watch this video, for example, so, you know, ethical people. And I'll just finish with a brief example. I was sat in a, in a hotel breakfast, eating my breakfast in, in New York one day at a conference. And I had to have a, a conference call with a co-op in the UK. So I was really quiet, as quiet as I could down here. And when I finished, I came up, I turned to the older couple next to me and I said, I'm really sorry. I hope I didn't disturb you. I had, you know, I had that call. They're like, no, no, we're really interested in what you were saying. This is great, you know? <laughs> so within two minutes, I'd convinced this couple from Maryland um, that they would invest in co-op exchange. They'd never heard of co-ops, but they thought the idea was great. <laughs> and the way they described it is that all their hippie friends from Maryland would join them as well. <laughs> um, I'm going to get you to elaborate a, a bit on that journey because we're going to take, I think, a, you know, a hybrid approach today, looking at the future, but also looking at your um, journey. So how did you get your IT skills? Where did you learn your craft? <laughs> Slightly embarrassing. Um, no. So when I was, what well, I was always really interested in computers. Um, I, I think when I was fourteen or fifteen, um, I was building a database that, of books. Um, instead of studying for my exams, <laughs> I remember my brother coming in to, to my room. Um, he's now a professor of computer science in in uh, University of Kansas. Um, and I said, he said, what are you doing? I was really proud. I said, look at this database that I've built of all of my books. You know, I had maybe 10. <laughs> and um, he's like, that's great, but aren't you supposed to be studying? I said, oh, come on, study. You don't need that. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really engage very much with school, but I really, really enjoyed what I would describe as problem solving using computers. That for me is the best way to describe it. Um, building solutions, finding a problem. The problem was knowing, and I was only 10, but knowing which books were where, and, and it was just fascinating to build kind of solutions. So I started that, I started programming um, and development, which is slightly different. We didn't have YouTube in these days, you know, back in the 1800s. <laughs> and um, no, what would this be? Sort of, uh, early 90s, early 90s, there's a clue to my age. So I know I look substantially younger, but uh, yeah, I was running about that early 90s. And, um, you know, the internet was there, but it was um, in universities. So, uh, a, and again, that was another thing that I was interested in um, for the older audience that might remember modems before we had <laughs> just direct connection into the internet. Um, I was so fascinated with this stuff that I, I managed to buy myself, a, it was a 300 baud modem. I think it was a 1200 stroke 300. And again, I'm only 13 or 14 at this time. Um, so I wasn't supposed to be using the phone line. It cost money, you know, to connect the internet in those days. And um, I remember my mom went out to go shopping. So I bunked from school that day and I'd arranged, I can't even remember how, through a phone call um, to buy this modem. And the guy that sold it delivered it to the house. I said, you need to be here between nine and 10. <laughs> you have to be here between nine and 10. And he arrived at 9.30, whenever it was, gave him the cash, took this modem, and I hid it from my parents. And I managed to connect to the internet every evening when they went to bed, not to the internet, sorry, this was the bulletin boards at the time, and just study everything, just, just soak up all this, all this information. It was fascinating. Um, and then one day, I think my father heard the click 
on the phone and he picked it up and all he could hear was these noises and I was caught I was caught then uh, uh, you know I wasn't in trouble I was surprised I thought I was going to be in trouble but uh, I learned a lot during these days and I you know I don't regret it so that that was really my my starting point I think that's brilliant and so apt for entrepreneurial journeys that uh you're using your home as the first place of business because uh, you know I sold my my parents ran a photocopy shop full of stationery and I used to get back from primary school and set up a little table out the front of their shop reselling their stationery cheaper than they bought at wholesale so they 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 also should have been angry but were kind of proud that I'd taken the initiative so I totally uh yeah hear you there buddy I I, I want to understand more about the because obviously they're quite sophisticated ideas that you've now um, looking at co-op exchange, we will look at that and converting an organization from a company to through the employee ownership trust into, um, you know, uh, a community owned enterprise. Oh, here comes Aaron. So I'll just let him in and hopefully, um, we'll continue talking, but, um, how did you get your introduction into business? So you're working at a consumer co-op and then you must have educated yourself around VME to go in from being a tech to being a, a founder or a business owner. So tell me how, how did you work on your business acumen and your commercial knowledge through that, that time? So, um, Remember in the in the swimming pool when you're a, a small lad and um, you see this big diving diving board. I don't know if you had one of these. We had one of these with a big diving board. You had the little one and the middle one, the big top one. So I achieved that by jumping off the top one <laughs> straight in at the deep end. So basically what I mean by that is I joined VME when I was either 21 or 22. And I joined VME, and uh, this is 1999, and I joined VME thinking I would be the account manager. I was good at interacting at, at uh, describing the solutions that the customers, in this case, the cooperatives, would need. Um, so I joined on that basis, um, and my first day I was appointed general manager. <laughs> so basically what happened is it's a family business, and the previous owner had had a, a heart a bypass operation. Um, so he just didn't have... The interest it didn't have the energy to be able to re-engage with the business so he appointed me general manager and that was really a baptism of fire because i was 21 22 i had people that were three times my age that were reporting to me um and most importantly it, they didn't like change there was a lot of resistance to change um i'm very very much i don't like you know what my ex-boss used to say to me the business is like a rocket it's either going up or it's going down. <laughs> Rockets don't tend to stay still, <laughs> assuming they're not in orbit yet. And uh, I thought that was great. And I, and I like change, not change for change's sake, but change for progression. And um, I, I introduced a lot of change into the business um, and it was resisted, resisted quite heavily. Um, the stage where there's one example of a, a threat of, of violence at one stage, um, and I'm trying to think of another example where one chap told me that uh, he will always be wiser than me because he's older than me. 
Okay, learned something new. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. So that was deep end stuff. So I didn't have any training in business or in accountancy um, or books. I remember looking at the very first P&L sheet um, and saw the balance at the bottom said 3.2 million. It was just the um, debits and the credits totaling up. Um, and I thought, oh, we've got 3.2 million in the bank account. That's great. <laughs> so I had to learn all this. I had to absolutely learn all this myself. And, and I, I kind of don't regret it. Um, we brought in new systems. We're one of the first users of Zero, which is a New Zealand-based um, finance firm. Uh, one of the first users in the UK and still use it today and uses API and integration. Um, and that was kind of unheard of when we first, 2009, I think it was. Now, these things were all brand new. Um, so really self-taught and a great team. You know, we had a great team of core people that, that believed in what we're doing. We weren't a co-op. We didn't even understand about other co-ops, as I mentioned, but we did believe in doing business ethically, transparently. And as I mentioned, the tribe at the beginning, tribe is quite an important word because we saw the co-op movement as our tribe, especially our smaller customers. You know, we have customers with um, over 200 stores and we have customers with one store. And, you know, they're equally important. And as a movement, I think it's important because we're, what's the alternative? We become, they all merge together into one super co-op across the world selling food. That's not a co-op. It's never going to be a co-op. It's never going to be community-based. So let's talk to the um, tribe and what you recognised when you heard Ed talking about the co-op sector at large. Something obviously lit up for you at that point. Do you know whether that was, you know, some commercial flame that lit up or some aspirational, emotional thing that you wanted to see in the world? What lit up for you there? Or was it both of those things? Like, tell us that, that moment or that time of your life. So it, it was, um, we'd been looking prior to that at what would be the eventual exit strategy. You know, every business owner will think to the future, what, what is the eventual exit strategy? And some will look to build up a business and sell it for as much as they can. And although they say they do, they don't really care about the employees. You know, they're just a resource that's being used to try and build up the value of this business and then they can move on. Um, and when myself and business partner were looking at our options, I'll be honest, it was a big concern for us. because we, we knew that the vast majority of purchases are by competitors and competitors will consolidate. And they don't have any interest in job security for, for the team, the loyal team, um, or as almost as equally importantly, are the customers. The customers uh, were succeeding, we're, doing, we're, we're trading profitably, we're doing well with our systems. And to move to other suppliers who, without going into too much detail, um, were causing problems for customers that were using their systems, it, it was going to be a big mess and it was a real dilemma but equally you know we can't we couldn't stay forever owning the business and um, you know we had to think of what our options were so we were considering what could we do as an exit strategy so that was always in the back of my head when i was listening to, to ed talking about the collaborative economy and also the reason i was even at that event was to meet a chap called ben reed who was the ex-chief exec at mid counties co-op and um, I was pitching to Ben this concept of a common technology platform for the food co-op movement. I'm a big, big believer in this. And I'll just explain what that means briefly because it's relevant. 
Uh, but this is the idea. If you look at Amazon, if you look at um, Tesco, Carrefour, um, you know, large food suppliers, um, Woolworths, you know, the, the big players, um, they have hundreds of stores and they can spread the cost of solutions, ERP technology across those hundreds of stores. The co-op movement can't do that because it's not one co-op, it's hundreds of co-ops, hopefully with some kind of federal arrangement, you know, a, a buying um, co-op or whatever behind it, second tier. Um, so that, that's a big, big issue that they, they, what do we do? So we have the small guys, the small co-ops that can't afford to invest in that kind of solution. Um, especially when you have Amazon opening stores that you can just walk into now and it has cameras everywhere, you know, that you can put stuff in your basket and out you go. That, that's the future. And the small co-ops don't have the resources to invest in that. The large co-ops still don't really, but they have better resources, but they're working in silos. So what, why spend all this money? It's like splitting um, Walmart, say, a great example, into 100 groups of stores, and then they all spend that same money. It doesn't make any sense. So for the cooperative movement to thrive and grow, bearing in mind, and I'm talking about the UK specifically here, if you look at the statistics from the 1950s, the graph goes down like this, the number of cooperative societies and stores that existed. And um, not many people know that in 1828, I think it was, maybe 1830, about 14 years before the Rochdale pioneers, there were 500 co-ops in the UK. Yeah. If you look, if you study Dr. William King, you'll find yeah. out. Now they failed, most of them failed due to um, actually credit, interestingly enough, offering credit. But the point is, the numbers were there, the numbers have gone down. And um, certainly, again, talking from the UK perspective, but there's an opportunity for it to grow. So I, I stand by, I still believe it to this day that technology is the answer. We don't want to turn into Kodak. So a common technology platform is the answer. So I was meeting Ben Reed to pitch to him this idea, not thinking about co-ops at all, but this idea that we could actually help our tribe. As I mentioned at the beginning, I saw the co-op movement as our tribe. They were abused by our suppliers. We wanted to protect, wanted to help them grow. Um, Ed just set that spark going that said, hang on, this really is in line with cooperative values and principles. What I'm describing here, I just didn't realize it <laughs> until he actually explained it. So that was the spark that went off. And I remember standing outside on the balcony and um, we're having lunch with a few people talking through and, and I just twigged and said, hang on, what about if we convert to a co-op? And I didn't know, even know how it, we could do it, if it was possible, but that was the spark that. <clears throat> Thank you, Stephen. I want to now talk a bit more from your journey into the future. And <clears throat> the process we're going to use is we're going to talk about business as usual. You know, what's going on in the world? What do you see? And where do you see that leading to if we don't make changes? Can you take us on the, the journey of the world according to Stephen? Yeah. <laughs> um, where do we start? Neoliberalism? Well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting uh, where, you, where you choose to start is really interesting, but you know, your recognition that some suppliers aren't even there for their customers, let alone their employees, and exit mechanisms are to your competitors rather than more often than public markets. And, you know, 
that there's some perverse incentives as in business as usual. A lot of entrepreneurs, I think, don't react the same way as you've reacted to seeing those perverse incentives. So I want to see the world through your eyes, if that's all right. So it's worth mentioning that I was brought up during the Thatcher era. So oh, that's all I knew. And I assume that's the way the world's always been. And I, I, I didn't, uh, well, technically I did go to university, but only for half a year. <laughs> that's another story for another day. Um, and thankfully I did, because otherwise I wouldn't end up in the co-op and ended up in this journey. But um, I, that's all I knew. All I knew was that kind of business. Um, or that kind of way of doing business and, and it just didn't seem totally right you know as i mentioned that the, the work in the co-op built me to this tribe that says we can all work and protect each other in a good way you know we, we, we could help and it's just so obvious now looking back it was cooperation we are cooperating with each other as opposed to you know the collective self as opposed to the individual self it just makes a lot of sense and i just didn't realize it at the time so i assumed the only way to do business was to have a private limited company um, maybe you aim for an IPO in the future, whatever it may be, um, who knows, but, you know, I, I was comfortable with that, um, but I wanted to run it in the proper way, and what, a good line that I can maybe describe to explain that is my, my old boss taught me a lot of principles, and one of them was, um, go for the second deal. The second deal in technology terms tends to be every five to seven, eight, nine, ten years, whatever. It's, you know, they're long cycles. And he said, go for the second deal because you need to make a, a really good job of the first deal in order to get the second deal, which means relationship. It means not just going for the short-term profits, but the long-term profits and the long-term picture. And that's exactly the way we ran the business. We focused on building up long-term relationships. Um, I can use examples in the UK of co-ops that have been working with BME for 20 plus years and they've spent X amount of money on technology. We've got other co-ops that have replaced systems three or four times in that time. Now, are they three or four times or X times better than the co-op I'm, I'm, I'm describing? No, they're not. Absolutely not. If I had to go through this upheaval, they're not moving forward as a, as, as a movement or as a society. Um, so, no, I think that was quite essential that... Uh, Focusing, how did I describe this? Focusing on um, on the movement, on the software, um, on the way of doing business, I guess, is, is the only way I can describe it. It's really just an ethical, proper way of doing business. But I did know and I knew that it was building up value in the business. And ultimately, you know, the owners had that value. And this is why, and we'll come on to this with Co-op Exchange, this is why fair shares fascinates me. Because it isn't just about um, perhaps, and I hesitate saying this word, but perhaps a kind of communist equality. Um, you know, if you're putting in a lot of investment and, and your time and effort, you're taking that risk. My business partner and I always knew with BME that if it failed, we were the ones, figuratively speaking, holding the baby. People could go and get other jobs. And we had this, you know, contractual requirement with customers and an obligation, an ethical obligation to deliver solutions. So through good times and bad times, um, you know, so there had to be something to recognize that as well, but not at the expense of the employees. And that's why it's not clear and simple. It's not just a case of saying everyone gets together. You know, there are nuances and complications um, around that. So really, for me, growing up through there, there was this 
complex or, or, or complication around, you know, this is just the way the world works. Everyone is in it for themselves. Um, we can still do that against other competitors, but do it in as ethical a way as we possibly can. And just to finish off on that, um, I'm at the moment now going back to university, <laughs> a lot of these books here. I'm studying for a master's in cooperative management at St. Mary's University um, in Canada. Uh, and it's absolutely superb. It's, it's hard work, but it's absolutely superb. And I'm learning an awful lot about um, Keynes, for example, and, and just the whole model that I, I, as I hadn't been to study, I didn't study economics at school. I just assumed that this neoliberal um, economy is the, was just the norm. That's just the, the way things were. I didn't realize this was introduced by Thatcher and Reagan really in strength in the early eighties. And it's led to where we are today, privatizing public utilities, for example. Um, and you know the stock market shooting off and the situation where you have house prices that um, people can barely afford now, you know, it, it, that's all a complete mess. Um, but I'll pause there because I'm maybe sort of slightly going off in tangents as I tend to do. Is that is that helping to answer the question or should I focus? No, I mean, Stephen, you, you're fine. There's no right or wrong. I'm going to talk with Aaron in the new year about the conversion to from VMA to the worker co-op. So what I'd like to get from you is, I guess, you know, the what's the end game of Thatcherite neoliberalism look like? How how do you see that working or, or not working if that's the case? There's only one end game that that could lead to, um, which is some gated community somewhere where the 0.000000000001% are all isolated with their, their multi-billions, um, plenty of money, and the rest of us are all outside that gate. Because that, that is the end game. That's where it goes. It makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. There's no question. It's a wealth redistribution here. Um, and where does that end? You know, it used to be that people looked and said, oh, millionaires, that's the ambition, you know. Millionaires just normal now, it's nothing. You know, people want to be billionaires. Um, so it is a complete end game. And, and I studied on this course about share buybacks, which is a fascinating subject to look into. Um, again, around wealth redistribution. So uh, for another day, but it is, it's just compounding the problem massively. So, and it's helped influence my mind in terms of, of the future of co-op exchange. Um, so clearly that's not, <laughs> Not an end game, but I must be honest, as I was growing up, uh, or, you know, as an individual growing up, let's say to the 2000s, um, you know, I assumed my, my, my job to my, my obligation to my family was just to make as much money as possible, as ethically as possible, so not at the expense, as I mentioned, of customers, not short-term profits, but long-term, um, so that they would be, let's call it safe, or, you know, have enough to live, because, you know, cost of living is going up and up and up. Um, and it was sad, but I wasn't really clear what I could do to help others that, that weren't in that position um, at that time. So, you know, I'm sure I wasn't alone in that. I'm sure lots of people, you know, do think like that. So, as I said, it's only since 2017 that I've actually realized um, there may be another way. Um, I'm not sure if that's the time to jump onto the principles behind co-op exchange in terms of eliminating um, or a dream to eliminate poverty. Um, would you want me to move on to that just now, or do you want to come back to that? I'll come to that, but be sure. We'll, we won't finish without getting to that. But I, 
I'm going to metaphorically get you to imagine you've got a magic wand and now you can cast the future forward to the utopia. Uh, utopia seems to be everywhere. Rutger Bergman, uh, Jess Scully, they've got both got books, brilliant books with utopia. So Steve Gill's Utopia, how could the world look, you know, without that gated compound uh, dystopian vision? What's the opposite of that? How could we live in your world if you could have a magic wand and create it the way you want? What's that look like? So I can't really answer that and I'll explain why. Um, I've got two answers. I've got a quick and a long answer. But the quick answer, I personally believe, is, is a cooperative economy. I think actually building a true cooperative economy um, is the direction, is exactly the sort of thing that the world needs. Um, that we would all work within co-ops, be members of different co-ops, and actually grow that. And that would mean it, it would end up being cooperative world and maybe small family businesses. You know, that to me would be, it's not full utopia that other people would describe, but that would be what I'll call an interim utopia. But the reason that I would struggle to answer that is I don't personally think that far ahead. Because I think we're that far, the world is that far in um, deep trouble that I think we need to look at stepping stones. So, I, and I, I commend people that, that are able to articulate a utopia. Um, for me, I'm more of a, a doer. You might be surprised that I prefer doing things than talking. <laughs> I do talk a lot, but, um, and I like to think of actions. How can we actually improve things? How can we sort of move forward? It's great to talk about stuff, but that's what, if all we're going to do is talk, it's, it's kind of useless in my eyes. So we need deliverables. Um, so I focus, my personal opinion is I want to focus on delivering, let's call it, a, I hesitate using this phrase, but a better form of capitalism, or maybe using capitalism against itself. So actually not trying to, you know, go for a Karl Marx type revolution, <laughs> although who knows, who knows what may happen in the future, but actually saying, well, you know, there's, there's laws, regulations, um, one good example, I don't know if I have the book in hand, but uh, yeah, I do actually, just as a little prop here. Um, I'm sure most of your viewers will have already got a copy of that and I've read it in, in some great depth. <laughs> You know, Mifid 2, but Mifid 2, I'll mention as an example, is, is an EU, you know, regulations. It's designed in the interest of the, um, the investor. Not many people really realize that, you know, there are good people out there that are actually designing regulations in the capitalist world to protect people, but it gets abused. And, you know, we're working in Mifid 3 and, you know, looking at ways to, to do that. So my argument is instead of just completely reinventing the wheel, why don't we actually look at using things like MIFID 2 and, and using tools like that, using capitalist tools in a cooperative and ethical manner? Um, and so, for example, and, and hopefully I'm not jumping too far ahead here, but, you know, just using co exchange as an example, you know, there's lots of people with money to invest out there, people that need to invest for pensions and different things. Well, they have a choice between investing ethically in a cooperative and not just ethically in a... Um, a, how would I describe it, you know, CSR type policy, you know, a polish, if you like, you know, a true, genuine cooperative um, enterprise, investing in that versus, in, you know, investing in deforestation or, you know, anything else. And I actually think if you get principle five education rolling forward, it become a no brainer. 
people look at that and say, what on earth would I want to invest in this when I can invest in that? So that's why I can't describe the utopia because um, I personally don't think I would see a utopia in, in my lifetime. I don't want to sound down, but I think I can see, we can see massive improvements in my lifetime. We can turn around the situation where it's for the few and not for the many and spin that so that it's for the many and not for the few. So that's my utopia. Uh, I think it's remarkable. I've heard this expression of using the power of capitalism against itself and how uh, the greed manifesto of the 80s we both grew up in and, um, you know, that actually now the power of startups lies in reducing the speed to market and the cost of customer acquisition and tightening up the lifetime customer value. And when you understand those metrics at their heart are improved with cooperative businesses, you suddenly understand things like startup cooperatives that have a 50% survival rate instead of a 10% survival rate for startup companies actually have commercial advantages in the market. And can, the power of those commercial advantages can be used to accelerate cooperative solutions. And exactly. uh, I think that's um, just one of those Aikido moments where the co-op doesn't have to suffer from a poor self-image. It can actually be commercially advantageous, right? And, and have advantages in the market. Absolutely, but we, we need, there's two things to that. One is education, principle five. You know, we need to educate people what co-ops are. You know, some people think it's just, like I did, you know, four years ago. Some people think it's just the food co-op and it's like a member solution for, you know, one AGM I was at, I was the youngest and I'm 44. <laughs> you know, and then we need to fix that. So, you know, there's that part of it. But there's also governance. I don't want to stray too far on this, but governance for me is absolutely key here because the court movement is not some off the shelf magic answer that we slot in. It needs work on governance, as I'm sure you're aware. If you look back through history, studying history is just fascinating. I'm so almost angry with myself that when I was a schoolboy, I just didn't enjoy history. You know, looking back now and reading about it, it's just fascinating. Um, and we need to learn from history because we are repeating mistakes. And part of that is governance. And, and this is one of the reasons we're introducing something called sociocracy in, into our business, because it shouldn't just be about democratic um, member participation, shouldn't just be about, you know, an AGM vote, putting your hand up or online clicking now for, for voting online um, for a motion that has been predetermined by someone else. You know, that's not true, true um, democracy from a cooperative point of view. That you know, the members need to be far more involved. And the way I, I like to describe governance is that assume you put a bad actor into a position of power, let's say chief exec, for example. So assume that I turn into Gordon Gecko. You know, we need good governance to make sure that I'm not, you know, selling this cooperative down the river. Am I giving all the um, supplier contracts to my friends at the golf club, for example, or um, even though I don't play golf, but, you know, you know figuratively speaking. Um, you know, that, that we need good governance to make sure that that is, is dealt with. And also the way I would like to see, and I think we can improve that, is every decision, these are some large cooperatives, as you know, and they build the startups we're talking about will build to be large. We need to make sure that every decision that is made, every management decision that's made, 
is based on values and principles. So I actually think for me, uh, meetings should be minuted in a, in a really efficient way. But each decision that's made, made from a meeting should have a little box in the corner beside it that actually say, this is why we think this decision aligns with the values and principles. So for example, if the decision was to, to give you know, a 200 million contract to um, a large listed business, which has got track record of unethical, you know, um, practice and investment, all the different things, it'd be pretty difficult to justify that decision. <clears throat> but if you're putting 200 million into the cooperative economy, with a proviso that says, this is slightly risky because we're investing in startups here, for example, um, as opposed to an old established firm that knows what they're doing, Absolutely, that's fine. I know as a member that I would support 200 million going into the cooperative economy more than spending 200 million with a large listed company on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. Yep. Stephen, this is perfect time to pull up and uh, do oranges at half time. I don't know if that's just an Australian thing in the sporting metaphors. I'm going to ask my colleague Megan to come online and share her screen. And just recap, um, hopefully we've got a, two horizons, one that's uh, dystopian-like and one that's utopian-like. And then the second half of this, we'll start to talk about the messy middle, like what happens in between those two futures. Megan, over to you. Thank you. Um, Stephen, are you familiar with the three horizons model at all? Not, not particularly, no, so I'd appreciate you to... to yeah, I'll just a really yeah. brief. Um, so that's kind of what Wardy's been talking through. So Three Horizons is um, like a transition management um, framework and tool for futures thinking and for transitioning towards those futures. Um, so what we've been working on behind the scenes here um, is a Three Horizons model of your story. Um, so uh, you can see here that um, the red line that's sort of scaling down are these old futures um, that aren't working for us anymore um, and they're sort of scaling out. Um, and then this blue line that's sort of scaling up is the new futures and the new possibilities or where we want those futures to go. Um, so in the top right-hand corner there, this sort of um, aqua colour um, is your vision of um, the future. Um, and on the left-hand side there, those um, the sort of pinky reddy colour um, is the old futures. And then in the middle here, um, we've got a bit of a summary of you. So um, here you are, Stephen, looking fabulous. Um, and I guess a few things that, that really stood out for me were, um, I called you the modem rebel. Um, so that rebel hiding away with the modem, but that really inspiring you um, for your kind of future um, this notion of the tribe that kept coming up really regularly was um, beautiful and then how that translates into um, cooperation and cooperatives. Um, and of course then, you know, this story about taking this great leap um, from the highest kind of point at the diving board and then, um, you know, using that to build your um, business and commercial acumen and then um, how you then apply that to the future. Um, so in terms of, I'll just move over then here to um, what's, uh, what are those old futures that, that, that aren't working for you and you don't think are working for society? Um, so neoliberalism was a big theme, of course, for you. Um, Thatcher there, she's in the old futures, scaling down. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, we know with neoliberalism, this idea that, um, you know, the wealthy know how to invest the money and how to um, make the economy grow and, um, and we should put our money into them and we'll get great returns. So um, scaling down is sort of, you know, these perverse incentives, um, everyone in it for themselves, unaffordable housing, um, the Gordon geckos of the world. And I also added here, um, which was, um, you didn't say it explicitly, but I sort of read it implicitly, it was also this notion of traditional education. Um, so you mentioned, I think, you know, that you didn't have that necessarily traditional business education. And really, you know, in a new, new economy and um, something that's going to work for cooperatives and everyone, the traditional idea of university as being kind of, you know, the only route is scaling down. Um, and then here, where does that lead to? That leads to the gated community where the 0.0001% are isolated um, and we really don't want that. So then what does that future look like for you? Um, so, yeah, really listen to your notion of that, um, you know, you're just thinking, okay, well, what's the step? So I guess that first kind of step is really just a massive improvement. Um, then maybe stepping up from that, that might look like reg regulations that protect people. You know, what, what might that be? Well, that's a better form of capitalism. Um, that's something that operates for the many, not for the few. Um, and then what might that broadly look like? Well, that's a cooperative economy um, where everyone is supporting each other and the economy is supporting um, everybody justly within that. Thanks, Megan, awesome, yeah. thank you. Stephen, have we missed anything about your worldview, either in the dystopian or the utopian vision that you think should be captured? I think that's absolutely superb. Um, I, I, it's hard to say. I, I can't notice anything particularly that, that is missed. Perhaps um, not being particularly familiar with the models, so excuse me if I misunderstood slightly, but... Um, one thing I would say, I actually think cooperative economy um, is something that, that can start at the beginning um, and it can grow. Uh, and I'll give you a little example um, in the UK. Um, and these aren't necessarily quoted figures, but they are derived figures, let's call it. Um, the UK co-op movement spends approximately 270 million on digital and IT every year. As I mentioned, derived figures are not published figures. Um, based on a percentage of turnover, a typical percentage of turnover um, spent in IT by, by similar sized companies. Now, if you look at the stats, the Co-op Economy Report um, for the digital and IT sector, cooperative sector, their turnover is 7 million. So there's 263 million that's been spent by co-ops in the capitalist economy. Can you imagine what 263 million a year we do for the cooperative economy. And that is a switch. That is an almost, not quite, but almost overnight, massive, massive injection improvement to the cooperative economy that could start at the beginning of that diagram. And then we get bigger, then we start growing it. Then you really start to see big change. That's why I talked about every decision should be justified by values and principles. Because if you're choosing between that capitalist 263 million example versus a co-op alternative, you know, you need to have a really good reason, or you should have to have a really good reason. But at the moment, I don't think we have that governance in place to justify those decisions. There are people, there are empire builders 
that in cooperatives that can go off, middle managers, let's call it, that can make their own decisions and they're left to get on with that because they know technology, for example, or they know whatever area. That needs to be fixed. Stephen, that's a beautiful segue. So the next part of our interview technique is to talk about the messy middle. And really what we're looking at is how do we nudge the future more towards a cooperative economy than that gated community of the end game of neoliberalism? And I want to start with the messiest of them, the capital conundrum. And this might be a great opportunity to talk about co-op exchange. So describe for those who aren't familiar with it, what is the capital conundrum when it comes to cooperatives and how could we nudge that in the right direction? Well, it is a conundrum. It's, it's been with the movement for many, many years. Um, and it's also a debatable topic. There are different people that have different ideas on this. Um, as I said, I've been studying in some depth, even beyond the, the initial stages of co-op exchange around the, the ethics of capital and, and what should be, uh, what is cooperative and what's not. You know, there are some cooperatives that have bonds, for example, listed on stock exchanges, you know. Um, that's a risky path in my opinion. That's a dangerous path. Um, but bondholders can have influence, not directly through voting, but through other ways, control over you know, money that you're dependent on, for example. So withdrawable share capital for me um, is not the right answer. Um, I, for example, I have some co-ops that I have money invested in, and I'm assuming I will not see that money again, because I know if I need to get that money back, um, that could put that startup in jeopardy. And that, that's a barrier to entry for raising capital for co-ops because then you only get money raised from the diehards like us that are really you know, engaged in the community. We need to attract capital from like that couple of Marylands that I talked to you about. That's the kind of, you know, there is that capital out there. There's absolutely capital available. It's just, how do we get it? How do we attract it? So what I, um, so that's the kind of capital conundrum is actually, you know, raising money without being tied to investors to change the direction so number one with cooperative we cannot have you know um jeopardize values and principles for the sake of raising capital so that's an absolute non-starter so we need to find a way that we can raise capital and without jeopardizing that and withdrawal share capital was an easy answer um, but it's it's nowhere near nowhere near enough to actually make a dent and um, you know we should see We've got lots of SME businesses that um, that could convert, for example. Um, we've got startups that you know you and I have talked about many times as well, but they need serious capital. I, I'm a big believer. If you look at the let's talk about the Silicon Valley model, where you know they're giving, let's say, making this figure up, for example, 50 million, and you go to join that society with that 50 million, then you've got enough to be able to actually. Um, employ people and people can feel secure in that employment and um, you know that there's money there's capital there supporting their vision of what they're building it might be unethical but there's still capital supporting it we need something similar um, in the the movement so withdrawal share capital just doesn't doesn't tick that box in my opinion so how could we find something that is uh, that would solve that and that's obviously the dilemma it's been a dilemma for many years um, there was um, the cooperative, the blueprint, the cooperative decade issued in 2013 by the ICA and capital was a key part of that. 
and that has been, as I describe it, carried forward to the, the new document for the next decade. <laughs> it's like a minute item that you just kick in the can down the road, you know. Um, I think we need a fundamental sort of rethink about how to deal with that. And to be fair, credit where it's due, it's not co-op exchange that's, that's offering a solution there. It's models like fair shares, you know, multi-stakeholder options where they recognize the rights of an investor without the right of control. I would be really, really happy to invest in um, a cooperative in Victoria, for example, you know, many, many thousands of miles away from me. They're doing something that I'm interested in, putting money in. Um, but the key difference here that we can attract others is the ability to get that money back out. Now, it may be the same, it may be slightly less or slightly higher, but let's just, for illustrations, describe it as a savings account. So I'm putting it into this Victoria co-op and um, it may be put in, let's say, $1,000 and it may be $1,000, $100 when it comes to take it out or it might be $900 when it comes to take it out. But if we can find a way to make freely available, just like a share on the stock exchange, where if I buy a share in Facebook on the stock exchange, I can sell it tomorrow. And tomorrow, um, it might not be worth as much as it was the day before, but I've still got, hopefully, the majority of my capital back, which might be needed for emergencies or whatever. So it's that ability to get in and out quickly. I don't mean from a speculation point of view. I mean from a um, security of your capital point of view. There's not so many people that can afford to just put thousands and thousands into different ventures and just leave it, like I described earlier. And um, so that's where we need a solution. And that's why we talked about transferable, so it can go to anyone without having to get board meetings involved with, you know, with, with the capital and co-ops at the moment. So it's transferable, non-voting. I don't need a vote for that Victoria co-op. What, what, what do I know about Victoria? It's a lovely place. <laughs> that's as much as I know. And um, we've got relatives um, that live there, but that's as much as I know. So I shouldn't have any vote or control and, you know, the, 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 the members of that co-op know what's best for that co-op. But if I believe in their vision and their purpose, then, you know, they could use some of my capital along with many other people from across the world. So the idea of bringing lots of people from across the world to co-ops across the world is what we're trying to solve. And it's multi-stakeholder co-ops like Fair Shares that facilitate that with the concepts of transferable non-voting investor shares. Co-op exchange is a solution to bring these people together. And I'm a big, big believer that, that, that we do need to be a global platform co-op. We need a solution like that, that we're not just working in isolation. For example, a, a stock exchange in Victoria, my example here, would um, only really interest capital from that area. But what about my friends in Maryland? They might think this is a great idea, superb. I want to put in some money into this. That's what we need to, if you excuse the pun, capitalize on. <laughs> we need to... We need to attract that kind of capital and bring that together. I know this is an area we both geek out on, but there's a few factors in the capital conundrum worth exploring in the messy middle. One is that liquidity issue, the transferability that comes with a stock exchange doesn't exist in co-ops. The other is the velocity. So there are a lot of... Uh, a lot of people willing to buy and sell shares on any given day. That velocity is missing from the co-op sector. How might you see increasing the velocity and the transferability without 
um, compromising the principles and the values of the co-op sector? How can you see, how do you see that progressing? So I actually think that cooperative market makers aren't a bad thing, in my opinion. They're providing a service. Yes, in the capitalist world, it gets heavily abused. There's no question. Um, but in a cooperative world, a market maker's job is to, to, to provide shares available for sale in this particular co-op um, and to buy when someone wants to sell. Um, and that could be a, let's call it not-for-profit co-op. You know, it could be some kind of um, entity that um, is capitalized well enough itself. You know, it could have, you know, peaks and troughs. Could have some sometimes where it's actually made some profit and where it's made some losses. You know, it, it's uh, it needs investigation. But I actually think that is part of part of a solution. But the key bit to me, um, avoiding the or, or ensuring we don't um, a, adversely affect the values and principles is actually, in my opinion, quite easy. You know, I like to simplify things, and I'm happy to debate this and 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 try and break it down further. But in reality, a non-voting share. By the way, there isn't such a thing as a true non-voting share. You know, um, th these investor shares, they have rights. They are individuals through things like this, the MIFID II, you know, they have rights. Doesn't mean they have the right to the direction of the company, but they do have the right to not be massively diluted, for example. And, um, you know, there are things we need to take into account here. You know, we're not about co-ops at the expense of individuals. That's not what's being described here. So it needs to be ethical and fair. Um, so I personally think the answer is the institutional money. If the stock markets were just switched off overnight, um, majority of pensions would just collapse. You know, pensions is a bit of a pyramid scheme that we talk about in another day. Not quite, that's maybe doing a slight disservice, but you know, it's not far away. And the reality is we're relying on you know, younger people that are paying in, and older people are, are, are taking out, there's money being invested. There are hedge funds that are competing against these pension funds. You know, so there's a lot of messy things going on there. Um, but pension funds don't really have the ability to invest in co-ops and get a return, generate some kind of return. I think we need to fix that. So institutional money, people invest in a pension, we'd like to see that pension invested in cooperative ventures. And I think that is part of the key. But it's not just a buy now and then sell, you know, X years time. There will have to be that liquidity, that genuine buying and selling. And that's where the market makers, um, whether it's a market maker co-op or it's a subsector of co-op exchange, don't know, uh, you know, still to be, uh, might be different market makers across the world. And, um, you know, there's, there's, this is a journey. You know, there's a lot of things to try and solve and go through. But the principle of that, I don't think we should ignore because if we don't have liquidity, it won't work. Okay, talking more about stage of life for uh, organisations that might use co-op exchange, do you anticipate it being used for, you know, early stage ventures at the concept or proof of concept level or the mid stages where that requirement for growth capital is typically in corporations filled by angels and venture capital, it's got a high risk, high return. Or do you see that stage of life being more like what you experienced with VME, where you've got a successful 20 plus year uh, enterprise and it's looking to convert from company to cooperative? Where do you see the mix, if there is a mix? What's Co-op Exchange's view on that stage of life? 
do you remember it in school when you were doing a multiple choice question? Yeah. There was always the D, all of the above. And you yes. thought, this is a trick. This is a trick, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure whether to take D or not. But in this case, I'm going to take D, all of the above, and I'll explain why. Um, there's, there's a few reasons. So let's start with the, the easier ones. Um, established cooperatives who, you know, a lot of these actually offer, or some offer interest, you know, on deposits. Um, that a, is a route for, let's call it the, the safe investments. The, you know, pension fund could invest in some of the larger societies that exist and generate some return. It's not dissimilar to them investing money in, a, in some kind of savings account, which at the moment, you know, might be, might be quite low, but, you know, similar kind of concept. So that is an option, but it's not the key target market, but it is something that could be looked at. Working backwards then, the VME example that you gave. So VME um, was valued externally. Uh, and as I've mentioned, uh, I've mentioned the word fair before, and it is quite important. This isn't some kind of um, philanthropic type, type venture. You know, we, we all have families to feed and to live. We have, you know, retirement plans. You, you know, it, it's not a case of saying we just give away something. Or aren't, it's not so good of you. You know, these things have values. So if you have a family business that's selling out something they've worked on for 40 years, blood, sweat and tears, um, they, it, it's not just being given away, there's a value attached to that. Within VME, because co-op exchange didn't exist, um, we effectively had to self-fund it. So it's funded, that value is funded from future profits. Um, now that may work for some, but it's not going to work for all, certainly not to the scale that we want to get conversion. So that's where co-op exchange can come in. So the, let's just use the example of, of VME, the trading company. Um, let's say a new entity, VME Co-op, is created, yeah, and it would list shares on Co-op Exchange, and the money that's used from, or some of the money that's used from those shares would be used to buy the business from that family business, for example. And now it's a cooperative from day one with no um, outstanding debt. And that's quite a key point, actually. It's not debt. You know, this is equity. So... And in return for that, the people that give that capital, they should be entitled to return. And that's where you talk about a percentage of surplus that's distributed to investor shareholders, non-voting investor shareholders. I have no issue. This isn't about the co-op itself just saying, we want it all, it's all ours, it's all ours. You know, if I'm starting up a co-op, I have no issue with giving a portion of surplus to the people that have helped me get it there. Absolutely no problem at all. You know, we're building something for the future. So... That's the, the middle, the SMEs, if you like. And the startups, startups is key. One of the biggest problems, I think, in, in the world today is I meet through the various travels, you know, including meeting yourself as well uh, over in Sydney and, 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 you know, different travels across the world. The people that I meet with some brilliant ideas and brilliant skills and, and the principles of cooperation, they don't have the capital, the funding. They, they, they need a job to live, to feed their family, to, to survive, to pay their bills. That's our biggest issue. And that's why actually I believe that what Silicon Valley has done, that part of it is right, where you have an injection of capital. So let's say we're creating um, a new, I use platform co-op because technology is what I know, but a new, um, let's just call it a Facebook, a cooperative Facebook, for example, co-op book, we'll call it. And um, it raises 10 million and it has X numbers of employees. These X number of employees can join this co-op in the security that they have a runway here. You know, they have job security, they have a wage that's coming through, they're not having to do this on their own. Um, 
That is crucial, absolutely crucial, is because if you're working somewhere and you're petrified as you're going to lose your job tomorrow, you can't focus, you can't really deliver what you're trying to achieve. Silicon Valley have solved that by injecting all that, the, the cash into the different businesses and giving people share options and all the rest. They, they have that temporary, I know it's just temporary, but they have some form of security around that. In the court world, we don't. We rely far too much on volunteers. And that's something I think we absolutely need to solve. So the startups are the core market, not to the exclusion of all of the above, the rest, um, but the startups raising that initial capital is key. And I take it a little step further, I talk about runways here. In the Silicon Valley world, you'd have a runway for 12, 18 months. And then if you run out of cash, you know, you come back for more money, then you might be able to invest at a lower value, whatever it may be. And, you know, we need to recognize that we give people enough security, enough runway to be able to build something that they have that security for X period of time and to deliver it. And it's why I quite like the fair shared model, because the fair shared model recognizes founders, but founders don't get any return unless they build a surplus generating enterprise. And that's key. Whereas Silicon Valley, you have shares, you have something, you know, it's in your interest, just like Uber never making profit, you know, it's in your interest to actually just build something up and then sell it and take that capital gain. Different here, different in the fair shares world, because the only way you'll actually make money yourself, other than your job security, is to build a surplus generating enterprise. I think that's such a key uh, point of difference between a, a unicorn, which only has capital really value that it has to exercise until the founders get paid compared to the cooperative entrepreneurs journey, which has to meet the capital requirements and deliver a surplus in order for them to get paid. So I want to talk about the messy middle for attracting entrepreneurs. If you're, I would count yourself as, uh, well, one of the few cooperative entrepreneurs globally like we probably know a couple of dozen people between us how do we bring more talent into a sector by suggesting you're going to work as hard as if you were in a unicorn but we guarantee you won't make a billion dollars <laughs> like that, that that's almost perverse how do you see us nudging that into the direction uh, that the world needs to go in. So I'm going to counter that. Yep. I'm going to suggest that they exist, but they're hidden under okay. the surface. Um, and I'll give you one little example. Um, the, the number of developers, I don't have the, the citation details to hand, but I use Palestine as an example, the Gaza Strip. The number of software developers that have been studying using all the great resources out there across YouTube, that I, I believe there's some really talented developers in the Gaza Strip right now. And these are people that might have ideas, might have um, you know, good enterprises that could be created, but they don't have the resources to be able to do it. So I actually, and that's just, just one example, across the world, I genuinely believe there's a lot more. I've met some of them already, um, and I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, I use um, Africa as another example. They're talking about Africa being absolutely the future. And I believe that. There are clever people across the world. So for me, it's not about actually convincing people, you know, training people. I know you're not suggesting that necessarily, but training people to become cooperative entrepreneurs. It's 
facilitating it, giving them the resources to say it's almost like, and this is a bigger speech, but it's almost like saying, look, here's a million, go and build something really good. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that because you need secure governance and rules, especially around uh, a listing effectively, because what we're describing with Co-op Exchange is like a startup that has an IPO from day one. Then that means that any capital value that's generated is within those people that supported that enterprise and the individuals that are actually working there. So um, that makes um, a lot more sense. So I actually, I personally believe, now maybe I'm glass half full here, but I genuinely believe that there are people there. We just need to, it's almost like we, we solve the capital problem first and they will come. <laughs> that there are lots of uh, people that are uh, interested in different ideas, but there will be of course ways against the principle five through education entrepreneurially education you know um there will be um supporting mentorships no doubt you know there are different areas that we can look in um i'm sure there's lots of different different areas sociocracy is a great example because it's bringing the strength of different people together um through decision making i do think we should go away from the dominant you know even using myself an example individuals you know, have a vision and driving. I, I do think there should be more of a cooperative approach to that. And you take different people's strengths. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely going to, I personally believe that's going to be the least of our worries. I genuinely get the money, get the money together in a true cooperative way, not just something that can be squandered and spent or whatever. There needs to be control around it. But get the money in a true cooperative way and we will build co-ops, but there's one little bit to add to that. And this is where we need the support of the big players. And I think they need to stand up and say, we will, we pledge principle six. And actually we're, we're planning just a little scoop here. We're planning to build a, a website called principle six offset. You heard of carbon offsetting. I think we should be doing principle six offsetting to show, to offset the damage that the co-op world is doing by spending in the capitalist economy, by offsetting it with principle six and really building a target there to build this up. It might start small and that's fine, but we need something to measure, start growing. So not just, you know, little comments on, a, on an AGM report and that says, yeah, we are doing this or we're doing that. And then it's dismissed. Hard, tangible, measurable data that shows that they're offsetting the damage they're doing to the cooperative economy by buying from other co-ops. Wow. I mean, that's a great idea. It's perfect as well. So Stephen, I'm aware we're blowing our time budget, but this has been great. I'm gonna ask you for your top three priorities or recommendations that help create the future that we all wanna live in. So, um, no pressure, but just the top three. Yeah. Are they in order? Uh, no, just three. Yeah. Three priorities. Oh, three priorities. Um, so I'm going to go with um, principle six. Yep. Um, principle five. And probably principle three. <laughs> Can you, know, you actually... Can you help Megan, who, who will not be as cooperative literate? So principle six, Megan, is co-ops working with co-ops. Principle five is de economic democratic uh, member participation. No, education. Oh, education, is it? Principle five? 
And the number three is the economic participation. That's yeah. it. That's it. So yeah, sorry, there's a little bit of just, I'm just being playing fun there, but <laughs> I do think that principle six is key because look at these startups we're talking about creating. It's not just the capital to create them. They need, if they're going to build a surplus generating enterprise, they need customers. So, you know, we need cooperatives to support that. And those cooperatives that are created by that support will then trade with other cooperatives. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a compounding effect. So that, that's quite important. And that's a quick win. So that, that's, that's definitely a priority. Principle five, education is important because we need people to understand co-ops. They're not just um, the local food store. You know, they're, they're not just, people can perceive co-ops as being some kind of old thing. You know, this new world's much better, the, the Silicon Valley, the Facebook and so on. Co-ops can be Silicon Valley. Co-ops should be the future of Silicon Valley. Absolutely. We call it in Scotland, Silicon Glen. You know, there, there'll be others, I'm sure, in Australia as well. So, you know, th this is absolutely the future, but we need to educate people on why. Why co-op? I like asking the question, why, 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 why? Why co-op? What's the actual advantage? And explain to people, and you will have your diehard um, Gordon Geckos, and that's fine. You know, let them go off and do their stuff. I would argue, glass half full, that the majority of people, if they understand what we're talking about here, they would get behind it. They would recognize that it's the right thing to do. And then the last bit there is obviously capital. It's actually, you know, we can talk for our heart's content, but we need money to be able to actually um, facilitate creating these enterprises. And just spinning back to your talk about utopia here, this is why I hesitate to answer the utopia question because there is a big deep question about growth economy. You know, what I'm talking about here is still growth economy. You know, and you know, can we build this into a circular economy, for example, which co-ops could be great at, you know? Um, leasing washing machines is one good example. Um, you know, co-op could be facilitate that kind of thing. So there are there's ways to 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 help that, but it is still a form of growth economy. But I would argue we're never going to get away from a growth economy without using capitalism against itself, without you know taking advantage of, of things like this and actually of cooperatives becoming the predominant um, enterprise, let's call it, over the, ne the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Stephen, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm going to ask Megan to rejoin us now and share the uh, Miro board and just provide a bit of a summary of the conversation to now. Sure thing. Thank you so much. Um, okay, here we are back to our Miro board, Stephen. Um, fabulous. So what I'll do is start with these old futures. Um, so we've talked about today um, that neoliberalism really is an old future that's phasing down and it's just not working for us anymore. Um, these sort of private limited companies, um, everyone in it for themselves. Um, and really where that's going to lead to is this gated community where um, that 0.001% are isolated from the rest of us. And, and meanwhile, the, the bulk of that wealth um, is really distributed into their hands and not um, with, with many. Um, so then what are the seeds of change um, that we heard from you today? So um, using capitalism against itself um, really establishing those long-term relationships, um, this tribe approach through cooperations, um, and then in that sort of legal entity being the cooperatives. Um, 
We heard about sociocracy, which is a great decision-making um, model that sort of fits better with this cooperative tribe approach. Um, common technology platforms um, sort of then leading up to this seed of the cooperative economy, that full system change for the cooperative economy, which we hope then the outcome of which um, will, of course, be this sort of wealth redistribution. Um, so then thinking about, okay, well, what, where are we trying to, where does that sort of take us to? Um, you know, you are hoping for a massive improvement. What you can see in your lifetime is a massive improvement, some regulations that protect people, a better form of capitalism, um, something that operates for the many, not for the few. Um, and then ultimately this cooperative economy um, that serves us all. So coming back to what he referred to this idea of the messy middle. Um, so we're in the thick of it now. And here's, um, I guess, my interpretation of, of how I understood how it looks for you. So um, in transitioning from these seeds to this ideal future, um, we have this capital conundrum, this challenge, um, which we heard some issues around the liquidity and the velocity missing from the co-op sector. Um, and that you can't jeopardise the principles um, of cooperatives just for the sake of capital. Um, so some of the solutions we heard then were um, the non-voting shares and um, the organisation you've set up around cooperative exchange. Um, and, of course, you talked about the value of fair shares and those multi-stakeholder options. Um, and potentially thinking about how cooperative market makers can play a role in that. Um, all then directing institutional money towards cooperatives um, from all over the globe. Um, you also talked about in that messy middle and a solution is around um, governance um, and, you know, governance that's really going to work for cooperatives. Um, and then sort of this discussion around cooperative entrepreneurs. So um, I really liked your response there was, was that they already exist um, and, you know, some great examples from Palestine and Africa where, um, you know, they exist, but they're hidden or they're just not necessarily mobilised into that space, um, that there are clever, clever people across the world. Um, and it's about facilitating those that exist, um, supporting them with secure governance um, and this idea that if we solve the capital problem, they will come. Um, and then there was also this discussion around sort of the sustainable startup model. So needing more security um, oh, and less reliance on volunteers um, and then needing the support of the big players. So what were your top three? Here they were. So number one, really um, leveraging principle six, co-ops working with co-ops. Startups need income and co-ops can provide that income. Number two, um, leveraging principle five, education. So people really need to understand the value proposition of co-ops um, and this idea that co-ops can be the future of the Silicon Valley and how can we really create um, education to um, kind of put that narrative and that message out there. Um, number three is principle three, economic participation. So we need money to be able to facilitate creating these enterprises and creating your utopia, which we all want to join you in. So, thank you. Thank you very much. I should just thank add you, that uh, Brilliant job for the first uh, time you've had to do a Three Horizons model. So thank you so much. Stephen. Fantastic. Um, anything you'd what like to add? 
Yeah, just very, very, very quickly to number three, because I didn't mention it, but it mentioned early poverty. It's very, very quick. But that point three that you mentioned there, Megan, is really quite key in that the capital appreciation, and this is a debatable and topical subject, but the capital appreciation of new cooperative enterprises, um, instead of being tied like Silicon Valley with the big hedge funds and all the big players, you know, why couldn't that be the public? All of us in general. And that's why we like the idea with, with Co-op Exchange of having micro shares. So this concept that you could actually, um, I, I used the example of on a previous presentation about Facebook, if Facebook had been a co-op and the, I think it's 832 million people in extreme poverty, if they'd been able to invest just one cent into Facebook, um, I believe that would be at Facebook's peak worth something like seven dollars now um, and but what's more importantly is it'd be generating a dividend of around two dollars i believe you need to check the exact figures but you'll get the principles behind it you know it's allowing people to get in um, snapchat was another example where the um the big hedge funds the big investors got in very early they then listed ipo'd they started at $24, it went up to $27, which is the first chance that the public, you and I, get to invest in Snapchat thinking it's gonna be great, it's gonna be like Facebook, it's gonna to go to the moon. And then it fell down to almost $5. So you've got a fifth of the value invested. It's all about transferring wealth from the weak to the strong. This changes that. If we can get the small players, all of us, uh, and potentially those in poverty, we can facilitate, this is a long-term ambition for them to be able to participate in capital growth and um, that could go some way to helping to eradicate poverty. Thank you, Stephen. Um, Megan, I might get you to stop sharing. Thank you. And uh, Stephen, thank you for giving us the generosity of your time and your wisdom. Um, from all of us at Ethical Fields, we're really interested in community wealth building, but particularly, it's been fascinating to talk with an entrepreneur uh, about their journey and how that ties into the cooperative economy. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and, and um, your friendship and support through this cooperative economy. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time. I look forward to chatting um, again soon. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me and hope to uh, catch up again very soon. Cheers, David. Thanks. Bye-bye.